Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. These panels have been made possible thanks to Double Exposure and their game design convention Metatopia at Metatopia Online 2020. These panels have also been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and moderators at this event. Now, let's get to it. Episode 289, The Intersection of Role-Playing and Medicine. Presented by Rach Schelke, Jacqueline Brick, Sydney Icarus, and Jen Dixon. Okay, sorry about that. Sorry about that technical issue, everyone. Uh, welcome to the intersection of role-playing games and medicine panel. I will be your host, as it were, uh, Rach Shelke, and I'd like to go around and reintroduce my panelists. So we're going to start back with Jax again. Hello, I'm Jax. That's me. Um, I'm going to mute myself in between me talking because apparently we're getting echo and I think I'm the only one without headphones right now. Um, but I am a, an analog game designer. I design LARPs. I design tabletops. I design epistolary games. I design really whatever catches my fancy. I'm a freelance writer, editor, and safety consultant. I have worked with, uh, people like White Wolf Entertainment, Onyx Path Publishing, Home Guest AB, and I am also a protest medic. I do a lot of, uh, street medicine and care work in the, um, Delmarva community, and I was trained by the uh, Baltimore Street Medic Collective earlier this year. Just going to go around, uh, well, my screen. Uh, we'll go next to Jen. Uh, hi, I'm Jen J. Dixon. My pronouns are them, they, by the way. Uh, I'm a disabled artist, writer, scientist. Uh, I am not a medical professional. I want to be clear about that. Um, but I have experience working protest medicine um, as a block medic back in the like 2010s to 2013, something around there. Uh, I've also worked for both the Iowa Department of Public Health and the Department of Human Services. Uh, and I study ethnobotany. Uh, I'm a botanist and systematist and have also studied uh, herbal medicine. Um, and uh, the other thing is I have navigated the American um, healthcare system with both an invisible illness and disability, and I've also cared for a terminal loved one. So connected, but not a professional. I should also point out, I am not a professional. My, my degree is in international relations with a specialty in Soviet politics, which does not make me a medical professional. Um, both Jen and I are street medics. So um, we are very clear that we are not certified medical professionals. Yep. Uh, going next to Sydney. G'day. Um, my name is uh, Sydney Icarus. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. I'm an RPG analyst and descriptivist. In the medical side, I'm a registered paramedic in Australia uh, and have just stepped away from my work on ambulances to pursue a new role in private practice, uh, which starts in two days, which will be very exciting. Congratulations. Um, yeah. Thank you, y'all. This is now the me validation hour. <laughs> uh, on the game side, I wrote uh, Writers of Last Rights, which is an Australian freeform LARP, which is about palliative decision-making uh, in, the, in the context of mechs 
and a uh, 5e OGL open game license product called Die Bet Once, which James Hayek, who writes Wizards of the Coast, called A Great Look at Death in D&D. So uh, nice. I also want to be very clear, as, as I am a registered paramedic, that the things that I say don't reflect my the organizations for which I work, and nothing I say today should be taken as medical advice. <laughs> and uh, finally... <laughs> I'm Rach Shelke. My pronouns are she, her. I'm going to be guiding our topics today. I'm the co-host of the podcast Plus One Forward, and sometimes I write RPG content for games like The Sprawl and Golden Sky Stories. I'm also in my day job a registered pharmacy technician in Ontario, Canada, where I work with uh, Toronto General Hospital in multi-organ transplant, and then also sometimes at St. Michael's Hospital in their inpatient pharmacy, which is our downtown trauma center. My specialty, I would argue, is in a uh, transplant. And again, anything I say. Transplant. Sorry? I said multi organ transplant. Woof. Well, <laughs> we have done multi organ transplants, but it just means like we're not just specifically kidney. We do everyone. Oh. Uh, but we do have a couple of world firsts in terms of doing multiple organs at once. But uh, this panel is not about my day job, although it could be, it will be eventually a little bit. Uh, but I did also want to mention that any uh, thoughts or opinions I express are my own and aren't reflective of any of my employer. And nothing I say should be taken as medical advice uh, in case something sounds like I'm overreaching my scope of practice. I'm not actually giving you therapeutics. <laughs> I swear. Big mood. Uh, so to go, like the genesis of this panel, um, the last couple of years I've been going to Metatopia in person and seeing an increase in games related to medicine and medical drama and healthcare. And now we're in 2020. And if I don't, I don't know if you've looked outside, but there's a worldwide pandemic. So I think that's going to be influencing a lot of people's creative thought and uh, creative direction. So I want to make a space for people with some connection to medicine to talk about their experiences and the crossover space between role-playing games and uh, medicine. <laughs> Uh, our focus is going to be RPGs because that's, I think, where most of our background is in. Uh, and at the end of each sort of subtopic, we'll give a little bit of space. So if you have a question that you want any of our panelists to address, uh, you'll be able to ask it then and we'll be able to get to it. Um, so to start off with my first subtopic, the big elephant in the room, as it were, is medical drama versus the actual reality of medicine in terms of how you want to focus your game. Uh, to start us off, I, I think it's interesting because medical drama is, I would argue, like it's a legit genre to go write a game about, but it doesn't necessarily react, or sorry, reflect medical reality um, to an extent. Uh, sorry, Jen, this sounds like you have a thought of the idea. <laughs> Yeah, no, I was thinking that um, so much of uh, our like our experiences with medical drama is television shows. And so much of that focus is on like finding the rare disease or um, the patient experience is very rarely like part of what the actual drama in the story is about beyond the person's disease. And I thought that might be an interesting thing to kind of touch on. Yeah. Um, to go off a little bit of what Jen said there, um, something I think about with medical drama a lot is that the disease and the patient are secondary to the actual drama of the genre because the idea of the medical drama genre is a bunch of people forced together in a high-stress situation having emotions at each other. 
and the patients, diseases, diagnoses, treatments, etc., are all secondary to what happens to the uh, the actual medical crew themselves when uh, they're forced together over this common problem. So in that way, your patients, instead of becoming people that you are actually attempting to help recover, become your sort of monster of the week almost. And that's something you really need to keep in mind when you're designing a game like this. Um, I playtested a game called The Ward for IGDN a couple of years ago at Gen Con, and their game was very specifically focused on the doctors, the patients, uh, sorry, the doctors, the nurses, the orderlies, etc. And that was fine because they were very clear that this is a game about what happens when you're all under stress because of patient issues. And they made it very clear that the game wasn't about patience. Now, that's not a design choice I'd prefer to make, but it's a legit design choice. But then you have to understand that you are making a game about a medical soap opera, not about medicine. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, sorry, Sid. Um, uh, Sid or Sid? Oh, it was just, it was, uh, both are good. Both are good. I'm okay. happy with either. Thank you. Um, no, it's uh, it was more of a thoughtful hmm than anything else. I think it, it's telling that um, when people talk about medical dramas, uh, shows like like House, um, they're more a reflection of, uh, you know, the, the Sherlock Holmes mystery than anything else. And that's uh, perfectly fine for your... So I'm just thinking in my head about, like, The Ward, Mashed, other, like, RPGs that have chosen to play in medical fields. Um, if you are going to be designing into that direction, um, I, I think it's just important to be really intentional about like what is the actual the the actual topic, and when your topic is about uh, families or um, the patients or whatever, then you need to uh, approach from a really d- different direction than uh, it were you to be discussing um, the the monster of the week nature or like the the detective mystery that is finding a rare diagnosis. Yeah, and I think one way to do that is to look at who has agency in the game that you're developing. You know, is the agency, are the players part of the solution or the problem seeking? You know, who who is it that you're really wanting to explore by writing your game? And I think that, uh, unless you had another thought, Sid? Uh, so I'm a, I'm a descriptivist by trade. That's like, I, I will talk about things that exist in the in the sphere. And like uh, Mashed, for example, which is based on the the show Mash about um, army doctoring, um, the the patients are like a couple of roles, and like they either live or they die, and the the patient themselves don't have agency. Um, Sandy Pug's game's most recent Monster Care Squad is a very good look at like caring, but doesn't instill the the monsters that we're caring for with like a lot of of agency. Um, Full disclosure, I haven't had a chance to read through that one in as much depth as I'd like. Uh, but they're two good examples to look for, for that kind of thing. You know what actually does a surprising amount of agency for both um, street medics and patients? Is Shadowrun, of all things. Really? And Shadowrun actually has a street medic class. Hmm. And, like, you can play a street medic or you can play someone who has connections to them and can thus call them in if you are injured. And allows you to sort of be on both sides of that equation, which I thought was really interesting. And I do kind of want to talk more about um, street medicine and paramedics in games a little later, because I have big feelings on that, as I'm sure we all do. But (laughs) (laughs) um, that's one I wanted to bring up now, because 
there's this idea that, you know, you have these elite care squads that are just kind of on call. And I wish that was the case. But so it deals with like healing as a as a skill set? Uh sort of like it's a skill like any other rollable skill. Huh. That's in cool. Shadowrun. Which is kind of cool because a lot of um a lot of medics in Shadowrun also do have social skills. They're primarily mental socials, as far mm -hmm. as I remember. It's been a while since I played, but Yeah. The, the reason I asked just so much of all of medicine has to do with specialized skill sets. Yep. And not anyone can just walk into that and kind of understand what it is to be a street medic or protest medic or a funeral worker or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like a great segue into our next subtopic. Uh, before we wrap this up, does anyone have any questions about uh, medical drama versus the reality of medicine? I am going to sit here and drink some hot salsa out of a cup because I'm a giant nope. weirdo. You have no questions. <laughs> You're good to go. Great. Okay. Uh, so as uh, Jen was alluding to, in medical reality, uh, medicine's very fragmented. Uh, like I was, I've talked about in my introduction, I work with transplant, specifically transplant pharmacy, which is like a subgenre of a subgenre of medicine. And I think a lot of people's experiences uh, working in healthcare are focused on like these very, again, lack of any better term, focused um, specialties. Uh, and thinking about writing role-playing games where you're not necessarily focused on emergency medicine, which is, I think, with medical drama, what people often think of. And uh, Jen, I think you had uh, written this topic in our notes. Oh, I think I did. Me? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to know if you had any further ideas on this topic. Um, well, I do, but I am, for some reason, like stymied mentally for a moment. Um, I think that when we talk about medicine, people immediately go to the doctors and you're right. Like when we think about drama in medicine, we take, talk, think about the ER because that's where things are fast paced and there's, um, immediate repercussions, there's immediate needs. And so it's easy to grasp onto that as a design concept. Um, but there are amazing and interesting stories to be told in things like, um, nursing home care. You know, um, there's stories to be told, especially with the pandemic right now, like at least in the U.S., we don't see doctors and nurses talking really openly about what they're going through um, because that's just it's a it's viewed as a political thing here, not a health thing. And so um, there's just there's just so many areas that we can tell interesting stories and talk about interesting stories that they don't all have to be about death and violence and, and injury. It can be about um, connections that are made, you know, uh, in birthing wards, or it can be uh, at spiritual gatherings where you have first aid people who are trying to figure out stuff. It's, it's not just what is fast and immediate that we need to discuss. Well, I think this is interesting because it reminded me that I believe in Ontario, spiritual workers within a hospital are registered healthcare professionals. That's a recent change. Uh, you need hmm. to go get a license in order to work in a hospital. And it's a space that we don't always have direct or I don't have direct uh, contact with, except in unusual situations. So like, uh, to put forth an idea, uh, we once had a pretty significant code blue up at my pharmacy. And the first people to call up was spiritual care, who is basically set up to do an immediate intervention. I've never seen something like that happen in a role in terms of medicine be like no this is what, what a code blue is pardon 
Oh, a code blue is a medical emergency uh, that happens in your hospital. So when you call different codes, they have different colors. Uh, Code blue is often associated with being like uh, a cardiac issue or the patient is dying, but it could just be like I've had code blues where patients feel dizzy uh, and aren't quite sure if they can stand upright. That's like a code blue. It's anything (laughs) that can be needed intervention. That, that reminded me of a thing. So I've known a couple people who are uh, spiritual workers at hospitals. <coughs> Excuse me. And one of the most interesting things that I've experienced with them is that they are trained in a multitude of kind of spiritual paths. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just a pastor or it's not just a priest in some circumstances. Um, and that's kind of interesting to think of. Here, here are people who um, their goal is to be open-minded and soothing and caring to people's spiritual needs while their medical needs are being taken care of. That's that's pretty interesting and uh, varied. Uh, Sid or Jax, do you have any thoughts about uh, focusing on different specialties of medicine in terms of role-playing design? I mean, something I'd like to see and something I think could be easy to sort of play out is, <clears throat> well, I had a thing and then I lost it. Cool. Um, I'll get back to you on that. But um, I'm yeah, not no, I'm not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We're um, all just. So I'm I'm a generalist by by trade. Like emergency medicine is a is a uh, pre hospital emergency medicine is a generalist thing. Um, you go to everything from non traumatic back pain to psychiatric to like you just you see everything. Um, and a lot of ED medicine is the same way. Uh, and that in saying emergency, they are not all code blues like uh there's a lot of people who aren't coping at home or something like that and uh i think i think one of the reasons you want to think more broadly about things and especially outside of um trauma especially is that when you look more broadly in medicine you look at uh patients as a whole and at their goals of care as a very distinctly different thing um we have lost some we lost the Um, jacks She'll be back. Uh, Count me. I think we have a Jax back. Wonderful. Um, Good luck to whoever's setting up the the overlay to make that work. Um, (laughs) Back. Sorry, my Discord cut out. Sorry. Um, The the polyphrased point I was making was that um, you need to consider when you talk about a, a patient in medicine or a, or a, a patient's journey as part of uh, how you engage with um, with RPGs is about um, like what what outcome do you want? It's very easy when you say cardiac arrest to be like, what outcome do you want? We want them to be like, you know, we want that heart beating again. But if someone's going into into hospital because they have a small exacerbation of an ongoing dizziness episode or because uh, their wife who has looked after them for the past 40 years uh, is in hospital themselves and they can't self-care, then like what what is their end goal and how do you process them through a system that is built around providing drugs and CPR and oxygen? Mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Well, and it makes me, you know, it just brings back to the point of like, I think you can choose either the the subject is the patients and the patient experience or the subject is the medical workers. But having to interplay between those two, I think you lose um, 
I think you lose lose the ability to really kind of understand the focus and you can kind of deprioritize the patient as a person. And that's a thing that I, I hate seeing. Uh, as someone with, who's disabled, like making my story just about my disability is shitty. You know, mm. so if you're mm. if you're going to involve me as a patient in your storytelling, make sure it's more than just about my diagnosis. Yeah, I love that. Um, Sid sparked something I wanted to talk about, which I think came back to me. Um, so a book came out this year. You can get it for free online if you Google Riot Medicine. It is by Hakan Geiger, who is a um, gender neutral uh, British block medic. And it is 400, I think it's like 400, 500 pages on how to do street medicine. And they're very clear that this is not like substitute for a training. You should also go get trained in person because your muscle memory is one of your most important things. But the book doesn't just talk about here's how you apply a tourniquet. Here's how you apply a splint. Here's how you, you know, talk to people about if maybe they forgot their medications. Because uh, that is something that can happen at a protest. And some medics <clears throat> carry generics of medications. Some don't, both for a lot of very good reasons. Um, stuff like Tylenol. I see Rachel making a face. And, like, stuff like Tylenol. I'm making faces <laughs> on the inside. And, I mean, yeah. no, it's complicated. And it gets more complicated <laughs> as you leave the U.S. I'm just yeah. Kidding. And it's a liability issue. And I get that. Um, which is why I, I don't carry painkillers when I'm out at a protest. Um, I know some registered nurses who I've worked with will carry painkillers and you know what power to them. They're a medical professional. I'm not. Mm -hmm. Um, But something that both uh, Hakan and the Baltimore street medic collective uh, taught me is always, always, always the patient before you do anything to them Mm -hmm. and that is something that we as non-medical professionals have to keep in mind because if we treat someone without their consent even if we treat them well they can still sue us for it Mm -hmm. right so then it becomes this whole thing if you're if you're focusing more on street medicine and games the idea that you need to be there for the person the idea that you need you need to both present as a friend and a, a medical provider like not not a professional, but somebody who can you know put a splint or a tourniquet or an ice pack or whatever. You need to be able to be both an authority and a peer to this person, mm-hmm. and it is this really delicate balancing act. Um, and a lot of times, you don't even have to treat things at pro- um, stuff at protests. But parents with kids will be like, "Oh, you're a safe person. Can you take care of my kids for five minutes while I go do something?" And most of the time I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll watch your kids for five minutes. But then that also ties me down if there's an emergency, right? So then you have to be able to keep an eye on what's going on around you. You need to be able to keep an eye on what's what could be going on around you. Like how many cops are there? Um, is What's the mood of the protest, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that would be a really interesting thing to explore in a game. Because most of what you're doing as a street medic is observation. Mm-hmm. I so back when I was doing um, medic support for protests, I I have anxiety, pretty severe social anxiety, and one of the ways that I deal with things is like preparedness, like planning. 
And I wrote uh, a little game that's cards. That's basically you have a backpack with X amount of size and you can add in cards up to the, your backpack is full of things that you, that are useful in medic situations. And then there was a deck of cards that was like, here's the situation, a sprained ankle or tear gas or whatever. And then it's like, did I prepare my backpack so that I'm ready for that situation? And it, it was a way of not dealing with the individual, not dealing with the, the overall topic of medicine, but it's more of the concept of just preparing is this whole other process and having what you need is this whole other process to think about. It's a bit of a segue, but so that's the thing. Well, the, the thing, the two things I'm reminded of someone who is a licensed professional who has a code of ethics, because that's what I've been reminded of in this conversation is uh, so two facets of that. Uh, one in terms of navigating codes of ethics, at least in pharmacy in Ontario, rule of thumb that gets brought up a lot is the idea of always center the patient in terms of your strategy and your plan care, or your your plan of care, plan of care. Because if you don't center the best outcomes for the patient, there is always a risk that you might get pulled astray. Um, and this is more difficult in certain situations than you would think it would be, and it's mm -hmm. an act of ongoing challenge because I think it's the instinct of humanity to be like, well, how can I make this easier without considering, well, oftentimes the hard, tedious way is the safest, most ethical way to deal with a situation. Mm -hmm. And the other side of this is uh, patient autonomy, which is the, the fancy way of saying get consent yep. and accept consent. Uh, again, examples from pharmacy, Example they love bringing up in school is you get an elderly patient, her daughter tells you, don't tell my mom what the side effects are of this medication, <laughs> otherwise she won't take it. Mm -hmm. You have to tell them the side effects of the medication and respect the choice the patient makes. Even if it's not necessarily the, patient, the best outcome for the patient, you also have to respect that they are allowed to dictate their care. I'm just X-carding that daughter so hard. Like, I, there are so many funny examples from pharmacy exams I can't repeat on air uh, because I signed a bunch of waivers. But you're like, oh my gosh, these people are awful. These are the worst. Yeah. And, and there's one of the other things to remember when it comes to like patient autonomy. This is this is something that that matters a lot to me um, because my decision making sphere, much um, like the the two protest medics we've got, uh, is not like within the sphere of a, a hospital where you have like a nice um, safety net and plus minus a controllable situation. I don't know your, your, um, your area, Rach. It may be, it may be totally out of control for all I know. <laughs> but um, when, when we go into someone's house and you talk to them about talking about autonomy, um, the other thing to remember, which is, which is interesting and doesn't violate autonomy, but needs to be considered with it is that your patient is also not a medical professional. So how how do you then balance the fact that they in the end have autonomy with they may not know or understand what's best for them or um yeah it happens a lot with um uh let me see if i can de-anonymize a story um a a patient who has ongoing cardiac failure who says yeah i'm, I'm having trouble breathing and i want to go to hospital You're like yes you are you have you have cardiac failure that is like what what you have, this is your your normal. Uh, no, I want to go to hospital. Well, it's you know, there's there's COVID in hospital. There's no COVID here at home. Maybe we should leave you at home. No, I want to go to hospital. And then you have to consider, like, is that is that patient autonomy 
the best thing. Like, yes, we have to respect their autonomy, but also where does it fit in with all the other ethical steps in medicine? You know, is it is it harmful? Is it um, is it benevolent? Is it going to generate a good result for them? Is it the best thing for the system as a whole to be taking up an emergency bed for someone who, you know, likely won't be going home very soon? All I can think of is the short answer is it's very complicated. It is, yeah. it is incredibly complicated, and that's part of why we love it, right? Mm-hmm. Something it's so much more complicated now with the pandemic. I mean, yeah. that's changed how many of us interact with medicine in general. Like me personally, a lot of it's online now, which is something I've always mm-hmm. wanted. It's great now. But um, but yeah, it definitely changes the triage, like how hospitals are handling things, how patients are engaging, and how patients are willing to engage. Well, the the example I love citing at work is, so I mostly work with ambulatory care. So I have patients who have gone their transplants and they get discharged. That's usually when I enter their lives. Um, They are going to telemedicine, which is getting video calls. But what happens when the patient does their blood work in rural Ontario, their uh, anti-rejection drug dose has to change. They're now taking half a milligram. They live across the province. It's a two-day delivery point and it's Friday. How do you get that drug in the patient's hand? Questions like that and dealing with those changes and patients who are legitimately concerned about coming to hospital, even if they need to go to hospital for procedure. Um, The pandemic has definitely made things very weird. Mm. Keeping an eye on time, does anyone have any um, thoughts of uh, about sort of different aspects of medicine before I go into um, we're going to talk about setting and like having a worldwide scope? Uh, there's been a couple of questions Actually, in the chat. Great. Yeah, I'm just going to say there's a couple questions here. Uh, I think I'm going to ask the second one first because it's more relevant to what you're talking about right sure. now. Um, could present decision-making challenges, like the example Sydney provided with the cardiac patient, provide a way to structure development of ethical thinking during a game? Yeah. Do it, Jax. Yeah. <laughs> I always raise my hand whenever we have questions like this. So here's the thing. You can want players to develop ethical thinking all you want during a game. That's a great thing to want. You can design your game and be like, yeah, this is going to teach my players to think ethically about things. And sometimes all players are going to pick up is how to do things strategically. That's not a fail state. And I've seen a bunch of very well-meaning, very established game designers be like, my game is structured to produce empathy, or my game is structured to produce care for this other group. And a lot of times it doesn't, because once the game is out of your hands, it is your players who are taking that into their own hands. And I've seen this fail so hard with a lot of LARPs who are like, Oh, yeah, this is a social justice LARP. And then people leave and are just cruel to each other during game because the idea of, oh, this is a social justice LARP presents, oh, we are doing a social justice LARP. Therefore, we are socially just. And then Mm. once you leave the game space, you don't have to do that anymore. It's, It's okay if you structure a game for ethical thinking and all it does is produce strategy. If you say, Playing this game makes you ethical. That's a problem. And sorry, this is just something that comes up in a lot of game design panels I've been on. And it's something I rant about a lot, and I'm sorry. Um, But yes, I think it is possible to 
actually build sort of a muscle memory for ethical thinking. Like if that if that is the win state of your game, and by being strategic in the game, you are building towards something like a code of conduct that Sid or uh, Rach has to follow, then yes, you can actually start building in muscle memory, but saying this is a game of ethical decision-making. It's, again, it's complicated. <laughs> I've got a, I've got a lot of I got a lot of thoughts on this, uh, and here's my uh, quick go through. Uh, medical ethics are hard. One, uh, the cross section between medical ethics, morals, and legality is also a weird space. And I mean, and this isn't me wanting to be a jerk, but I don't expect someone from off the street to be exposed to medical ethics for up to four hours and walk away knowing what the hell they're doing, because. Even I cannot make all the decisions. I have, like, to sort of talk about personal experiences here, I have been on call at a trauma center on a Sunday afternoon and had to sit around waiting for the medical ethics board to decide if we could legally kill someone who had an aneurysm and was brain dead because I had to dispense the medication for organ harvesting. Like, that is not a life experience that I think you can get from playing a game. Um, and I don't expect everyone in the world to want to have that experience. So yes, you can look at medical ethics and have a better understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing, but I don't think the, there should be an onus to tell, teach players how to think that way. Uh, and the other side of it is medical ethics are, they're a little bit fluid. I know uh, the Ontario College of Pharmacists very recently restructured their code of ethics to make it more accessible and understandable because there was some not misinterpretation, but ease of access would be the best way to describe it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway, so, that's my rant. It's similar. Oh, go ahead, Sydney. Um, okay, uh, so I, uh, I wrote a, a, a game um, called Writer's Last Rights. It um, frames the decision of what to do with uh, a mech after the pilot has died. And it's, it's um, a game that is designed to take players through those the conflict of those medical ethics um it's an australian freeform larp uh which means that it doesn't have mechanics so there's nothing to like sort of think strategically about um and each of the characters is built around one of those core ethics so one of them is about the autonomy what what they believe the 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 pilot who died would want one of them is um Wait, was about the benevolent died or the pilot who died? i'm sorry so the the pilot dies the big robot is like un now unpilotable because like they have a Got bond okay. um okay. and so the the concept behind it is well the pilot always wanted to be like buried with her mech so that would be the right thing to do but also it's got a lot of good parts on it and it would be like unfair to all the other pilots who are still alive if we don't take those parts. Mm -hmm. But also there's maybe something left of the pilot in that neural link and it would be unfair to not try to pull that out. And then the person who is the decision maker for the game plays justice, plays the fact that like each of these decisions has a cost and each of these decisions has a benefit and you need to, to decide between them eventually. And it's not, it's not about teaching players to be ethical or about giving players the experience that that I've had in in medical ethics. What it's about, I think more than anything else, is about allowing people to be in a really conflicted situation and to come up with a solution that they find satisfying. Because this is the one thing that I was always taught, and I don't know if you're taught the same, Rach, which is 
at the end of the day, whatever you come down to, like medically and ethically, at the end of the day, when when you're on the stand, you're the one who has to defend it. And then afterwards, you're the one that has to go home and sleep. So yes. that, yep. that was always what we were taught. I, I should be clear. Um, I wasn't trying you to rip into your game. You talking shit about me. No. <laughs> I, I actually I think... All I'm thank thinking you, of Chad, for writing about my day job. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? thank, thank you, Chad, for linking me because now I can follow you on Itch.io. And frick, I love following people on Itch.io. It's great. Um, yeah, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on it, especially um, given yeah. that like you have that conflict with it. I would love to love to yeah, hear so what you think about something, it. Something I actually want to say about that is, so I am a uh, complex PTSD survivor. And one of my favorite games in the world and that I think is most honest to the experience of a trauma survivor is changeling the loss. And oh yeah. The reason I've heard it that. Is this, well, first edition saved my life and I got to write for second edition. So I'm very proud wow. of that. Um, but the thing I want to compare your game and changing the loss here, and please take this as a compliment. Uh, Cause <laughs> um, but there's that layer of remove that allows for more emotional honesty with the game mm. right so for changeling the lost is the bet one of the best games i've ever engaged with about trauma because it has that layer of fantasy and magical thinking involved because trauma is not a linear process your brain does not process trauma in a line it processes it in spirals and bursts and ways it couldn't have happened and ways it could have happened and all of this other stuff. And you've become this, you know, very weird transformed person, much like a changeling. And I think that layer of remove with, um, uh, your game about your mech, uh, sorry, writer's last will, as I look up the name, the actual name, thank you. Um, is, it allows for that layer of remove because now you're actually talking you know, you you begin to sort of talk about this mech as parts, which is, I think, a lot easier for people uh, yeah. in this case. And, but you also have this neural uplink. You also have this emotional connection between two living beings, even one that is artificial in some way. And it sort of allows people to have a more honest discussion in that space because you have that layer of fantasy and remove. It was and described to me as... Um... Yeah, the Trojan horse of emotional gaming, and like yeah. I, th I think that's that's probably a big take. If you you know if you're looking at making a medical drama, like don't go make something else and infuse your medical drama into it. <laughs> make it a yeah, make it, it a really space pirate game metaphor. Yeah, like games Very about good. medicine or medical choices don't have to be medical games, and I think yep. that's an amazing example of that. That's super cool. Uh, a game I'm working on right now with Onyx Path is Deviant the Renegade, which is about people whose autonomy was completely disrespected by um, groups of medical or spiritual experimenters. And the game is about what happens when your autonomy is so thoroughly disrespected that it breaks you. And again, once again, has that layer gentle. of fantastic. What? It sounds gentle. Yeah. But once again, it has it has that remove. It has that layer of fantastic remove, and it's it's not a medical game. It's a conspiracy horror game. Mm. So I and, actually think that leads really well into the first question that we had. Uh, um, great. 
many RPGs build team dynamics into their mechanics. Team dynamics are the core of healthcare delivery. How could developing dynamics amongst players instead of building... I'm sorry. How could developing dynamics amongst players instead of building team dynamics in the rule set work? Ooh. You got to work with your players. You got to communicate with your players. Something we've been talking about this entire panel is communicating with your patients and communicating with everybody involved. Please, please, please talk to your players about what you want. Please. I beg of you. Yeah. Talk talk (laughs) about with your developers or with your potential players, what they want in the, in what they want to be feeling out, what they want to be experiencing and then find ways to tie that in to each other, whether it's roles that you choose. Go ahead, Jax. No, you're, you're right. And I, <laughs> I, throw, I throw a fucking shit fit about this every time I get this question. I'm sorry, Asker, it's not you. It's literally not you. It's that I've talked to developers who are like, how do I build making the character players into a team, into the mechanics? I'm like, have you tried suggesting that the GM talk to their players? I'm like, no, the GM can't spoil their plot. Uh, <laughs> what are you doing? No. Oh, I hate that. And like, I, I, too get love that it's of, I get that it's a school of thought, and some people are very into that. But then you know what you got to do. You got to go, hey, are you guys going to be mad if I spoil some parts of my game? No? Great. Let's, you know, let's talk about it. Or yes, okay. Well, here we go. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. You gotta talk to your players, guys. You don't have to have the GM as this unapproachable god at the. Sorry, Jen, go ahead. Spoilers for medicine. The doctor is not a god that you cannot approach. I tell doctors they're wrong all the time because that's what I'm paid to do. I look Mm -hmm. at their prescriptions and they're broken. And I'm like, I need you to come over and manually fix it because it's a narcotic and you can't just tell me over the phone. Although you kind of can in the pandemic, but let's not go there. Um, But (laughs) the law changed. It's fun. Mm -hmm. Um, But that I think might be a way to kind of look at it is within the... You know, within the healthcare sphere, the doctor is not someone whose word is law and you're never to question it. We question it all the time because the doctor is our peer. Um, Sid, it seemed like you had also had something. Uh, you seemed uh, emotionally just, grabbed. <laughs> also that, emotionally grabbed by like, yeah, my, my job is telling doctors they're wrong, uh, which like is, and by by the way, my uh, like EMTB equivalent, um, their their job is to tell me that I'm wrong. When I'm like worried about something, they just be like, "Have you noticed our patient's foot is pointing the wrong way?" And be like, "Ah, oh, shit." Um, yeah. Look, like if you if you want to if you want to talk about like building team things, um, Jack's talked before about like how Shadowrun uses like a heal skill. Like, look at what your healing skill looks like and what that mechanic represents, and then look at how your aid or teamwork skill look works, and then like sort of ask yourself like, what what is that about? Like, what what does it really mean to PBTA is a really good version and a really good example of it because they abstract a lot of their mechanics. And so if you're in, um, you know, what does the angel look like in Apocalypse World and how does aiding them look and what does that mean as like as like a team sport? And really like for, for role-playing games, crafting your mechanics in such a way that they demand multiple players do different jobs will give you because that's the other thing too the reason the reason that i'm good at telling doctors they're wrong at some stuff is the same reason radiologists are good at telling certain doctors they're wrong with they're wrong about things and the same reason that rachel's can call a doctor on on a um med error because like we're specialists in those fields and 
if you have your players be specialists in their field or their, their characters be specialists in their fields and then give them opportunities to act in those fields towards a common goal. What I when I'm talking with oh go ahead. I was gonna say what encourage you know communication between players to kind of talk about and strategize what they want to do and how to leverage each other's skill sets. That actually might be the strongest thing you take away from this panel is hey, yeah. that's okay. That's what we professionally do all the time. Thinking Sometimes strategically is also I'm... thinking ethically, right, Jax? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, Jen, I stepped on you again. That's, right. that's okay. Uh, that's, what I'm thinking and talking to game designers about this team dynamic type issue, the easiest way I think in kind of looking at it is thinking of it as a puzzle pieces. Each of your your player, you know, groups or classes or whatever you want to be developing has what they're good at specifically. But then you also want to think about how specifically can this person or this type of player interact with this other type of player. And if you Ooh, can yes. build in those types of connections, like putting together a puzzle, then then you can kind of help push people towards that, uh, so that it's easier for the GM to talk to them about teamwork. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so something I learned from my local social group is my local social group, and I'm going to reference D&D here, and I'm sorry. Uh, my local social group plays D&D as a basically a tactical team exercise, right? Like you build your party and each of them has a different specialization and each of them bolsters each other's specialization. And I think that's a really cool way of playing it. Um, because you get to have your characters, but you also get to have this group that is working together. And something that I think we as gamers forget a lot is we don't have to be the hero. Like, we can do good, and, like, that's awesome. But we don't have to burn ourselves out, either in-game or out-of-game, trying to do <laughs> a good thing, right? Like, mm -hmm. you can say, hey, I'm tired, can you handle this thing? Or hey, I'm not sure about this thing, can you handle this thing? And a lot of us are either stuck in cycles of um, rejection-sensitive dysphoria or, you know, fear of looking stupid or all, even just pride. Just, like, I don't want to ask someone because if I ask someone, then I look stupid and I look useless. And it's, I mean, shit, I'm part of, I can swear on this channel, right? Yes. Okay. Shit, I'm part of the IWW, the International Workers of the World, and our whole thing is one big union, right? And as Jen knows, and I know, medics always travel in teams, because if you yeah. have one medic, and that one medic goes down, or that one medic is busy, now something else might happen. And, like, something I would love for gaming culture as a whole to have is more more of a buddy system, more of like, a, hey, we'll work together on these things. Uh, you know, your specialty is this, my specialty is that, I'm good at this, you're good at that, whatever. And being being able to sort of like allow people to move through those spaces, but like, I can't have a culture shift in a year as much as I wish I could. So, but no, I, I think I think you made a really good point, Jen, which is sort of, fitting character types together as puzzle pieces and causing those to work together and sort of being able to push people in that direction. Um, my little freak out earlier is mostly about people trying to use things like that as a replacement for communication as opposed to an adjunct. Mm. 
yeah. which I think, I think what you were saying was using it as like part of it, which is awesome. And more people should do that. But a lot of people are like, mm, I want to talk to my players. Here, have this rule set instead. <laughs> yeah. It's okay. You can talk to your players. They're your friends. Hopefully. Mm -hmm. They better be. <laughs> so, Sid, when uh, Jack said mentioned, you know, don't be the hero and don't burn yourself out, I saw you have a visceral reaction there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's two parts of that which are really important. One is, like, uh, some sometimes it's not about being the hero. Like, I have rocked up to houses and have been, like, again... Uh, strictly de-anonymizing in my head as I as I try to tell the story. Mm -hmm. They've been like, you know, grandma's having a terrible time and uh, she needs to go to hospital. And you look at them, you're like, oh, like I'm sorry to tell you, this is like the the diagnosing dying needle starts going off in your head. And you're like, ah, uh, yeah, probably best she stays here with you, and and we're gonna you know help you to comfort her and get in touch with our pal care team and stuff like that, which um Jen, you'd have a lot of experience with, um, and that sort of stuff is is you know quote being more the hero i uh i i once um walked, walked into a house sorry no i consider that awesome i don't consider that being the hero because you're not like being yeah. an action hero in that sequence and, and that's it right like I, i've walked into a house and and you know one family member is screaming to like you know do cpr and the other family member is trying to quickly show you their advanced care directive with the not for a suscitation tag on it as you as you run through the door and every action movie in the world tells you like you should be on that chest and like shocking at 200 joules and like running adrenaline vials into the knee and stuff like that uh but the it, like the most heroic thing to do there is to be like yes we acknowledge that like death is a part of human condition um and and i think that is uh, i think that we are taught that curing disease is the most heroic thing that you can do and it's not caring for people is the most heroic thing you can do in medicine yeah it, it reminds me of going back to the hero thing and something to keep in mind if you do want to explore those spaces is i find in medicine often we end up being the heroes when we don't realize we're being the heroes it's not a set of circumstances we would consider it to be heroic uh i deal a lot with uh the relatives of patients who are cleaning up the patient's life after they've passed. And then having those people come in and say, yeah, my relative passed away and it was very tragic, but thank you for being there and thank you for doing all this support work. And it's not something we mm -hmm. know of and we're like, yeah, I'm gonna wake up and everyone's gonna tell me I'm doing a good job. It just kind of happens. Or on um, more hopeful, optimistic end, getting randomly stopped in a grocery store because your patient is there and is like, oh, you know, I didn't realize you were shopping here. Thank you for everything you do. And you stand there kind of going, oh, whoa. <laughs> I never want to see another one of my patients again. Once they're out of my <laughs> ambulance, they're someone else's problem. I have long standing relationships with my patients. Jax? Bless um, you. I, um, so I, I, great. Thank you. I wound up helping out an organizer's uncle at a picnic because he wound up fainting and cracking his head. And, it was basically because he hadn't drunk enough water and was sneaking alcohol during the barbecue. And yeah, he's not supposed to have it. Um, but, and I didn't know that the organizer knew who I was when I was helping him out. But as I was helping him out, she's like, yeah, you're at every protest that I hold. And you know, you've, you've always been there when I've been struggling. And I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, you know, you. it means a lot to me that you were there for this, even when you didn't have your kit. And I'm like, thanks. 
And then I hurt my back this week, which is why my setup looks a little bit like a hostage video right now, because I'm on, like, four <laughs> pillows. And I mentioned, you know, there's a protest this Sunday, and I'm like, hey, Key, I'm really sorry I can't be there. And she's like, babe, you're at everything. You need to rest and not do cartwheels. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay. Thanks. D is for dangers, Jax. What? It's not a marathon. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, D is for it's dangers. Right, Don't forget that, you know? Not, it's a marathon. Um, but yeah, um, like having people in the community be like, you do so much, you deserve a rest. is the weirdest thing for me to hear is somebody who has only ever like had to take care of basically two heat injuries and also some people being like, Hey, can you watch my kids for five minutes? Oh, sometimes again, the most heroic thing you can do is be there sometimes have your games acknowledge the players are there and trying to make positive change <laughs> oh that that leads really well into that other question that i'm not gonna take lead in i'm i'm uh, a podcast host rach this is what we do <laughs> uh, uh we have seven minutes we have another like, question yeah so rach you said that um you know we should be making yeah. positive change one of the, the questions is um what kind of metrics and outcomes can replace damage and death in the setting of a healthcare delivery in a game? If you're if you're going to talk about positive change, how do we frame those positive changes mechanically to our players without using HP and death? Well, like I, Sorry, I think of um, because I've written for Golden Sky Stories. Uh, Golden Sky Stories doesn't have HP and death. It's got relationships, and it has part of the game is you want to have your relationships grow more intense, which you do by having positive interactions with the table, and other players reward you for that. Um, Are reactions that you handle well? Mm. That's another one I've done. Sorry. Go ahead. It's okay. That was my whole thought. Was like maybe HP isn't the mechanic that you need. You need to think of like. Again, your relationships, your connections to people. I, mm -hmm. off the top of my head, given we have like six minutes, I can't think of any other specific examples. Uh, I have a really else. good. Okay, I go. Have a really good, quick one because this ties into something you and I spoke about, uh, Rachel, earlier, which is um, maybe it's the stake isn't that you die. The stake is that you need to, you know, go and get your cyber arm implanted, and then mm. that costs so much that you're put in debt or whatever and that's that's something that the the sprawl does really well um the shadow run has previously done it by like oh you lose essence you lose your human spirituality by by taking on transplants rachel loves that okay a, okay I can, I, can i can i, I do my sidebar I can't do it. don't like it for the love of god do not do this you dehumanize my patients they're struggling enough as is don't do it that's it and there was you as a disabled person who needs assistive devices like don't make that a fucking negative like yep. and and it shouldn't be like part it of what makes me interesting my cane is not why i'm cool you know sorry part of um sunny moraine who is a scholar of uh, genocide and disability studies um wrote a thing recently about how cyberpunk 2077 does cyberpunk less well because of the whole you lose your soul to the machine that's not the point of cyberpunk no, um no. and there have there have been manifestos written as far back as the 80s about how queerness and cyberpunk mesh and how um like madness and cyberpunk mesh and cryptness and cyberpunk mesh and there's so many freaking 
disabled white people who are like, wouldn't it be interesting if you lost your humanity to the machine? And no, the point is that humans cause humans to lose humanity. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I wanted to raise my hand because I wanted to be like, it's not about, um, oh, I just totally lost my train of thought. Sorry, oh, okay, no. keep going. I'll come back to it. Well, I think part of it in the idea oh. I bring up a lot when this gets bad around is if you're not working in transplant spaces specifically, you probably don't have a good sense of how advanced we actually are right now. I mean, we can do, we've been doing arm transplants for about 20 years. Um, Canada did their first hand transplant, I think, within the last four years. And since I've been working in transplant, um, and there is a mental health component of transplant. We have uh, mental health professionals who work specifically with transplant, but why that is a thing is very complicated and cannot be replicated with mechanics like you lose your humanity the more you change your body. That's problematic. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So the biggest recommendation I can give people who are writing games about some aspect of medicine is talk to people in the field. Mm -hmm. Talk to whoever you can, because if you are not the professional yourself, you need to make sure that you're getting input because you may be unaware of some of your own internal biases. You may be aware of how those things impact uh, patients or people who are involved. So please, if you're designing a game, this works for anything, even like queerness and stuff like that, fucking talk to the people who are already doing something similar or in those fields. I sort of want to close out uh, for me on a, on a concept of the people, the young people who got COVID came out of hospital and they're now like having cardiomyopathy and other like cardiac problems as a result of it. Their issue is not that they have less HP. Their issue is that they are now hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in debt and that their life yep. is going to be like that now that they have an, an ongoing like pre-existing condition. Um, that, that is the reality of, of the human experience, and that is an okay thing to mechanize. Yep. Don't mechanize people's emotions. Mechanize the circumstances. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ooh, that that's a bumper sticker. Yeah. I like that. I think that's something Chronicles of Darkness actually does really well, because uh, we recently replaced uh, derangements, which I don't like, with uh, conditions, which I do like, because they are things that could be symptoms like, for example, spooked or obsessive. And they are things that are happening to you because of something. They are not part of your mental cognitive schemata forever. And I'm sure we could talk about men mechanizing mental illness a whole bunch, but it basically boils down to don't do it unless you do it very carefully. So don't do it. <laughs> I'm not a never say never person. Find a yeah yeah. You, if you're gonna do it, there's gonna be good ways and better ways and hard yeah, ways. Like for, for example, I really like that Chronicles of Darkness doesn't do traumatized as a condition because wow, there's way too fucking much to talk about there. Mm -hmm. But it does things like uh, spooked or immobilized, which you can be immobilized by, you know, being tied up, or you can be immobilized because your emotions are doing a thing, or for any other reason, and you can combine them to make, like, ah, yes, this person is having a trauma flashback, but it's not, the rules aren't, this is a trauma flashback. So just keeping an eye on time, uh, I think we should close out, uh, and mm. Thank you, everyone, for coming on this panel today. I'm going to just go around my circle on my Discord screen. Uh, Jax, if people are looking for more of your work online, where can they find it? 
Hello, you can find me at my link tree, which is uh, linktree slash rufflejacks. Uh, you can also find me at jacklinbrick.design. You can find all of my links at either of them, but you can also find me on DriveThruRPG. You can find me on itch.io. Uh, I have a Patreon, which is linked at both my link tree and my site, which I'm going to put in the chat for you guys, so don't worry about that. Um, I'm very active on Twitter. I'm very, very political on Twitter because my day job is in state politics. Um, and those are all my opinions, not the opinions of the state of Delaware, as I have to say that. Um, but yeah, so please come find me. I'm very chatty. Uh, Jen, also, if people oh, are looking, uh, uh, people are looking for more of your work. Sorry, I'll go ahead again. Sorry. Go ahead. So Jen, if people are looking for more of your work online, okay. where they can, where can they find it? Uh, well, I have severe social anxiety and I'm not very active in social media. I do have a Twitter. It's Jen J. Dixon. I may or may not become more active in that. Uh, and my art is on Botanical Voyeur on Instagram. So you can check that out there. Uh, otherwise, I don't exist in the social space. <laughs> <laughs> do not observe me. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Cindy, if people are looking to find more of your work, where can they find you? Tomes, thankfully, linked Writer's Last Rats in my itch stuff uh, earlier in the chat. Go find that. Uh, otherwise, find me on Twitter at uh, Sydney Icarus, S-I-D, Sydney Icarus. Um, and I do my podcast, The Hard Move, but end of December, that's changing into something else. So I'm probably doing a new podcast by now. Ooh, exciting. Uh, you can find me uh, on your whatever podcast app you're using. Uh, look for Plus One Forward or the podcast powered by the Apocalypse. And you can find me on Twitter at TedDog, which is T-E-D-D-O-G. Sometimes I post gaming stuff. Sometimes I post frustrated medical stuff. So you'll get each. <laughs> and I wanted to state that later this weekend, uh, Rach and I will be doing a panel about heartwarming gaming during uh, the pandemic. And Rach and I have been doing uh, variants of this panel for, I think this will be our third year now. It is our third year. Yay. So please come hang out with us. It's a good time. We talk about how hot Jason Pitt is as a tradition. Oof. So we Mood. are the most unusual Mood. and yet hot, heartwarming panelists. It's true. Sometimes we talk about kissing. Sometimes we talk about cute animals. It's a good time. Sometimes we talk about slow TV. Um, like, I think that's it for us. Thank you. Thank you all.